to a special edition of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Amplifying Black Voices, a series of interviews that help bridge the gap between what you think you know and what you need to hear about the true meaning of racial justice, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Real conversations about real experiences that lead to real change. Join the conversation now with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson. Hello, everyone. You know, it's been a year filled with really unforgettable moments in so many areas of our lives. But, you know, one in particular has been this idea of Black Lives Matter. And, of course, we've all watched on the news, Kirsten, from Portland to Chicago to New York to Louisville, L.A., almost every town you can mention, Minneapolis and so forth. But it's really been a personal story, hasn't it? And I think that's what we really wanted to explore in this series. I come from an interracial family, and my mother was a pioneer, and she married a Black man in the 70s when in towns where they were telling her to tell people that her children were adopted so she didn't rock the apple cart. So, um, because she, I have two um, brothers that are mixed. So, you know, I've witnessed what really happens, but I can't say I'm not Black, so I don't know the experience. But um, for me, this is very personal until we have equality and getting rid of this patriarchal regime of slavery and hatred, our country will never live up to the potential it was meant to have when people were visioning it into existence. I do love our country, but um, I'm excited about this series because to you keep saying, you know, you've said it over and over, there is so much for me to learn. I think I know things because of my experience, but the truth is I don't know. And really what I want to know is how to support and serve the vision actually happens. So on our series, we're going to have guests, uh, some of our friends and acquaintances that we've known for a long time, and we'll learn more about them. But some of our guests will be people we don't know. They might be authors, they might be musicians, speakers, and so forth. Today, our very special guest is Eric Howell. Eric, good to be with you. Hey, good to be here among you guys, virtually, but here. Well, Eric is uh, a longtime, uh, very good friend, a creative friend from Chicago. We met when Eric was playing at uh, coffee shops and bars. Uh, yeah, <laughs> anywhere and everywhere. That's right. We, we struck up a real friendship, and we, but also my wife, Jenny, says, hello, Eric. He really misses the times that yeah, we were able to hang out, even on our back patio with a few friends and you and your music. So it's, it's great to catch up again. Yeah, it's wonderful to see you, Mark. And uh, hopefully, even in COVID lockdown times, Jenny's still running. <laughs> Jenny is still running. I yeah, can attest to that. Yeah. She is. <laughs> Metaphysically and physically. Well, Eric, you uh, a while back posted what I thought was a very inspirational, moving, and quite frankly, educational and actionable story. Uh, on Facebook about your life, your times, your experiences. And I would love it if you could, you know, sort of recount that or share that story with us so that we can amplify and really hear it. Yeah, thanks for thinking of me. Uh, you know, first, let me say that as a performer, you know, I don't use social media in any sort of way of grandstanding anything other than here's where you can see me perform. And I would use it to share pop culture stuff among you know, perhaps like-minded individuals. I'm a huge Beatles fan, as you may remember. So you'll see things of other Beatles and things on my posts and movies and books I've read. 
you know, I'm not a, a self-prescribed internet thinker, thought thought leader, as they say, and I'm not. I just didn't use the platform for things that I did care deeply about and personally about, but I just didn't use it for that. You know, I just stuck to finding common ground among you know light topic, entertainment being one of them. But once George Floyd was killed. And all of the protests began happening in the midst of this pandemic. An interesting thing happened where I felt like, okay, now if I don't, you know, I'm watching all these posts from people, right? And about like, we're sorry, we're white. Or, you know, how can we listen more? And I was sort of like, all right, well, if I don't say anything at all, and just post like something else about a, a movie that I saw in the 80s, there is that, that, that feeling of like you're then in agreement with all of the bad crap, you know, like if you don't have anything to say about the problems that are going on, then you're being what com- uh, complicit and complacent with it. Sweet. I'm going to interrupt there. I know we said we wouldn't a lot, no. but I love that point and neutrality and apathy are the deadliest of killers. At least, you know, the enemy from the ones who are doing the killing, right? But the ones that are quiet and do nothing, are the ones that are feeding the systemic problem. So I'm really glad you said that. Yeah, I mean, thank you, because maybe I was uh, woken to post something. <laughs> but there's nothing that I posted that, that hasn't been going on in my life, you know, for years. But the idea of not remaining silent about it, you know, for one thing, I think that some of us post those kind of things because we do want to find out who your real friends are and like what people are thinking. And, you know, there's a there's an open dialogue there, but there's a lot of people. I You know, I think, Mark, one of the things you might remember about that post is I, I was really kind of I was angry, but I also knew that like, boy, you, you never take to the socials pissed off and, and just fire away and hit send. It's just a bad idea. You know, number one, I'm not going to articulate my thoughts very well if I'm coming from a place of anger. So what I actually did is I had these thoughts running around in my mind, right, about like, oh, I should post something about this. I mean, you know, everyone's talking about it. It's happening. I've got, you know, my friend's mothers are texting me. Are you downtown protesting, uh, thinking of you? You know, and I'm kind of like, why are they thinking about me? <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm all right. Why are people thinking about me? And then I sort of realized like, well, this is a there's a huge cultural shift going on in the wake of George Floyd and a huge cult- cultural shift going on in, in within these protests. And I sure as hell don't want to not be a part of that and remain silent. So I. I wrote my thoughts down in in a Word doc, right? Just free form, verbal, mental diarrhea, like no rhyme or reason. Just get it out on the page. And all it was was my thoughts on my experience in race, with racism in my life. That's all I did to myself. Note to self. I thought it might be maybe four paragraphs of which I could take the best ideas from and then post about. But about four days later, I had about four pages. You know, my experience with racism in my life. And so once you open that door and really just remember and confront yourself, it just was there was no end. And then I took the best, the most cohesive thought from that personal rant 
and then posted about it. Still pissed, but I posted from that perspective, which basically ended with me telling people, hey, if you're just one of those kind of people that want to duck your head in the sand about this and still use, you know, derogatory terms towards people of other races and all of that, just unfriend me because I'm not going to miss you. You know, and I, I'm, I know that there must have been thousands, millions of people doing the same. I'm surprised about the impact, even in my small world of that my post had, because as I say, I'm a, I'm a performer and I'm like, hey, let's see if I can get some attention this way. I re- released a new song. I'm playing, you know, with this and such and such musician. And most of my posts would get like, you know, I have no reach. Most of my posts would get like, you know, 40 likes or something. And then I post this thing from the heart that I just wanted to get off my chest and it makes the biggest blow up of anything I've ever posted. So, you know, there, there's definitely something in the zeitgeist and a cultural shift, you know, to that, that it was, it was worth posting. And then the feedback that I got from people was the most important thing. The, the amount of people that commented and, and replied back was very important to me in helping my awareness of the situation. But I can tell you this from, from your listener's standpoint, because, you know, we can't see me. So if you listen to me talk, why the hell is this guy talking about racism? What the hell does he know? He sounds lily white. But like Kirsten, much like your family situation. So my father was a very successful physician in the city of Chicago. He's a leading psychiatrist in the city of Chicago. He also happened to be an African-American, black male. And my mother was this Polish-Irish 22-year-old Southside woman, white woman who married my father in the mid-60s. So guess who's coming to dinner was definitely very much an aspect of my family portrait. So I come from an interracial family. And I think that one of the very first things I can remember, you know, what's that thing, guys, where they say when you're two years old is about where your first memories begin? That's right. And I think that, you know, there's two things that I remember and at that stage, you don't really know if it's fantasy or if it really happened kind of thing, unless your relatives are telling you all the time that it really happened. But, you know, I think my recollection, my first recollection is a rock being thrown through the bay window. It didn't penetrate the glass, but it like cracked the glass of our house because I was born into a house on 97th and Morgan on the south side. So Michelle Shider. By heart, it hurt. And so, you know, we were the we were the interracial family on that block, but everyone else on that block was black. So my mother was very alienated in that environment. And then my sister and I were like these light skinned kids running around with all the black kids who some kids on our block would play with us, other kids would throw rocks at us. So there's this sort of disparity going on from my earliest memories. I remember my mother holding me up to the window and pointing to the moon? And then pointing back to our tiny little black and white TV and saying, see, he's up there. When it was one small step for man, man walking on the moon. And my mother pointing that out to me. Those were my earliest childhood memories. But, you know, coming from this background, right, of this interracial background, you know, I'm lucky. I look at the situation and how it's when I was growing up in an interracial household in the 70s. Father was successful. So there's a dynamic there that doesn't exist in every interracial family or in any any family. But, you know, there is this bubble that I was in. He moved us out of that house at 97th and Morgan to a beautiful five acre ranch house in Glen Ellen, Illinois, in the lily white suburbs of Glen Ellen. And I think even to having grown up in Glen Ellen and had a, a really, really privileged upbringing, 
even a, uh, in the face of all that adversity, I had a really kind of normal middle middle to upper class upbringing. Even now, I think that the population, the black population in Glen Ellen is like 0.2%. So I've, ne- I've always been the other. I can summarize it in that sense. You'd hear people say these things that are just atrocious, but they just didn't know to shut their mouths in front of me. If you follow, you know, I hear racial slurs and horrible. I don't know how much of this stuff, you know, you, I suppose you can get rid of bleep me out if you want. But, you know, I remember being on a um, little league team and something I was up at bat and it was, it was pretty good. And some somebody on my team who was a friend, leaned over to another, he said something. Like the, the kid who was a friend of mine was, nigger, strike out. Like he, he yelled something about a black kid on the other team and he called him the N-word. Then my other white friend turned to that kid and went, shut up, don't say that, Howl might hear you. Not be quiet because it's wrong to say it's that. Wrong. It's wrong. Howl, Howl might hear you. And then the, 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 the first offender, that kid, turned to the other kid and went, what? You mean Howl's a nigger? Which that my other friend then told, how do I know all this? Because I wasn't there. My friend told me this because he thought it was hilarious. And, you know, I think I was probably eight years old. I found none of it hilarious. I found it, you know, really disappointing, really disappointing. I have to say, in I don't know why, but in, in every aspect, when I would hear other kids say stuff like that, either about me or towards anyone else, the instant thing that I always, that always came to mind was, who are their parents? Like, I very rarely was saying anything about these kids. I was just always like, oh, <laughs> my, my, my friend's parents are jerks. And this would transfer all the way to, like, well into high school when you start going to friends' houses when their parents are out of town. <laughs> and I think, you know, we did that and went to some house party, and it was packed. And, the, and that person's mother was there at the house party with a bunch of teenagers partying and whatnot. And I do remember thinking, like, oh, it's her, the... I heard your daughter say something racist in fifth grade. Nice to meet you finally, you know. So I think that there's a generational thing happening there, right? Like it's – I heard uh, – uh, Kirsten, I think you mentioned this on one of your other podcasts that your grandfather or something could never know that you had black brothers because he would have, quote, flipped out. I think that's what you said. Very much. Yep, Exactly. And it's like, well, that's understandable, right? Because the racism and the the lack of wokeness, to use a modern term, but just like I basically call it like the the lack of intellect <laughs> is so obvious in certain generations that what else are they going to think? You know, it's like it's bizarre that my mother was as forward thinking as she was. It was bizarre that yours was in those mm-hmm. times. Actually, and your your mother would have been uh, she interracial. She she got married in the 70s, you were saying? So she had me in 69. My mother's 70 now. So in the early 70s, shortly after myself and my brother, she uh, married my stepfather. So yeah, it was early 70s. So which would have been, you know, maybe eight years after my mother and father got married. But when they got married, when my mother and father got married, it was still illegal in certain states to interracially mm-hmm. marry. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, fast forward to today. Imagine you're having an opportunity to talk with this friend's mom. You're two or three decades now. So it's it's a little out-of-body experience. But I mean, I guess it gets to what we need to hear. Great question. Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, I think my, my conversation with with folks like that would begin with a question. I would have questions for them about what drives you 
to think this way? What informs your thoughts that you would pass those thoughts on to your children? What are you thinking? And that is the point, right? Is it for us to wake up and open up a dialogue and come to have a greater understanding and pass that on to our children? The amount of mental judo that we all have to do to get to that place, to get to that other place. But if you're not willing to do that work, it's over. It's over. And and growing up as I did, I have to be, I'm really, really conscious of that. I'll I'll tell you this. I was on, when I was in my early 20s, shortly before we met, we were downtown with a buddy of mine and we grew up together. In fact, it was that buddy who was also on the Little League team in the story that I told you earlier. <laughs> this is how far back we go. And now we're in our early 20s and we're, we're waiting tables and we somehow we finished our shift, our pot, you know, we're wearing our white shirts with a, a it was kind of slightly fine dining. So we had a black bow ties that were, you know, loose on our collar and the requisite black trousers, right? And we're basically in our uniforms as waiters and we're on public trans and our pockets are jammed with cash because we said tips, you know, you know, we didn't really think it through and we somehow got on the wrong platform and headed the other direction. You know, we want to head back to the apartment. We're supposed to head north. And, you know, on that journey, there was this black dude was coming at us in the early evening railing against the white man. And he's just, you know, you're in the Chicago subways. Those of us that live in Chicago, we know it. We know it well that there's characters on public transportation. This guy's he's making his way from train to train. You know what I mean? But but he's not begging for anything. But he's making his way from from car to car, and all he's doing is spitting vitriol against how you know the white man and how he's oppressed, dropping f bombs. And I stood up to discuss this with him <laughs> and I you know and I'm just like, again consider the uniform and, and I'm trying to tell this guy like hey man you can turn it around and you can't let anybody else like you decide who you're going to become you decide who you are in this world you don't let anybody else tell you what you are who you are and you can do that for yourself you're giving them to you're, you're railing against the control of the white man but you're giving them that control and he was like, what do you know? You know like, he's like, shut up, white boy. And I'm like, I'm not white. You know, and, and this sort of stalemate of the discussion occurred. But it, that's when I realized, I'm like, what do I know? Like, I don't come from an inner city background where I didn't have a chance from the moment I was born. And in these obstacles we're facing, of course, we know this, that it, it has to come down to education, valuing things. I was lucky, as I say, my, my father being a, a well-respected black physician, a psychiatrist, and with his with his profession within that was tons of books. You know, our, our living room just had these this library of everything from an Encyclopedia Britannica to like, of course, health books, those those books where you, you would see the human body and then there'd be... Um, clear plastic pages and you'd lay over like the various body parts and things of the human anatomy over those the were, those were the best over the figures right like that, that's when i was three i was cracking those books and those were like my coloring books uh these J.R. tolkien books and you know he had just a, a lot of those books as well and so i would try to read them when i was four and mark them up much to my my dad would be furious with that i just take him but my mother would say you know any word that you don't understand, look it up. 
And this is before the internet now, so it was an issue, right? You'd have to, then I'd have to go to the other books in the library and look up in the dictionary, the encyclopedia, every word that I didn't understand, which would have been about every other word before. But I did, I remember doing those things and I had those things available to me so that by the time I got to first grade kindergarten, where you finally have to crack open the book and gather around in a circle with the other kids and read. And I was terrified, right? Like, oh, God, got to read because I expected it to be further along than the stuff that I was reading at home. And to my surprise, it was, you know, see Jane Rock and those kind of things. And I and I immediately was it was a it was a cakewalk. It was easy to do. And then the other kids would read and they wouldn't necessarily phrase things as well or whatever. And then I felt they made fun of me for reading so well. The other kids did. So that when my time came back around in line to read again, I dummied it down. Right. right. And this is important because you this is what happens, right? Is like you want to fit in. So prior to, to me being made fun of, I was like, Jane kicks the ball. Tom picks up the ball and runs. Run, Tom, run. And they were all like, <laughs> and the other kids would read like, Jane goes to the store and gets milk when, you know, they put punctuation where it didn't belong and nobody was attuned to what was happening in the books yet. So if you look at that experience, it's like, what else are you going to do as a kid? You're going to try to fit in. You're going to try to do what the other kids are doing. And if in that example, they were merely teasing me for reading too well. If you grew up in the inner cities or, you know, somewhere where there's there aren't any books like that in the house, you're going to tease the kids about anything else. But you're going to tease them because that's what kids do. And then the other kid that's being teased as a defense mechanism to survive that is going to kind of dummy it down or try to fit in. So you talked about that, that moment where you actually decided to speak up, where you know you couldn't stay silent anymore. You had to write that and put it publicly out there. And I know just even as a white person having grown up in corporate, right? When I loved Obama, loved Obama, like if I could marry Obama, I would marry Obama, right? But I can't because Michelle hasn't. But, you know, where, you know, I would get these emails from all of the top executives, because you know, there's no women and there's no black people, right? Definitely no women or black people, right at the top. And it was always, you know, the N word and the monkeys, HR did not care. Let's just be real. HR did not care. Oh, yeah. In corporate. (laughs) Oh, yes. But the wraparounds, part of what people, I've always been an advocate and I'm known for being a fighter, a warrior, right? I don't stay silent, but there's an incredible amount of fear. And I loved what you said, that, that fear of not fitting in. So you learn to stay neutral. So you don't ruffle feathers or lose your job or not get picked for the promotion or not be able to live in the cul-de-sac that you want to live in, right? Like all of it. I mean, just even for white people, white people sometimes really do want to do the right thing, but there's so much to lose. So for you, as you know, you have the mix, you have both the white and the black, you fit in in both places and nowhere at the same time. Like you're just, you're kind of like your own person. How does this shape you even now? Well, I don't, you know, this is an interesting thing because people do say like, talk about your experience, Eric, talk about what it was, what it was like for you. But it's still like that. I haven't like burst through the field of dreams and I'm on the other side of it. It's just like, I've learned to navigate but what I assumed that when I got 
old, meaning grew up, <laughs> that all of the uncomfortableness and the fear and the racism that I was hearing in, in school and experiencing, and that certainly that my father experienced and my mother would go away. I assumed that by the time I got to this uh, ripe old age of 53, that it would be over. So I never really was, you know, this activist about it because I was like, you know, as you say, sort of stuck in the uh, both worlds and observing and shielding myself from it as much as I could, you know, through education. And by education, I just mean learning as much as I could about the human condition and human experience, not formal education. You don't need formal education to get through this stuff. You don't. All those corporate people that are dropping the N-word and talking about monkeys, they're formally educated. Most of them are. uh, Most of them have Ivy League degrees. Exactly. So they're well educated. Eric, uh, what what a terrific chance to catch up with you. And you know, I feel like those talk show hosts. We have thirty seconds left. Uh, you know, give me your give me your philosophy of life. Right, sum it up. But you know what? Maybe we'll wrap it up with. We often talk on this show about action, so maybe I can think about that. You know, education, big term. What can we do now? Right. You know, so again, you have the platform. You have the microphone. Tell us what to do. I feel as if you've, you've generously given me the time, the platform to sort of open up the rib cage. And now it's this big mess that I've discussed, and we're not putting it back together again. So the one thing I do think about quite often and, and from my own experience, number one, I think it was John Lennon who said, you cannot tell people anything. They have to find out for themselves, you see. He's right about that, right? Like, So there, this is why education alone isn't the answer. It's the experience and the actions taken through that education that must be the conduit to change. What I find is that, you know, perhaps the big crux of the problem is that very, very fine line instinct and intellect. I think that people, on one hand, are confusing instinct with intellect. They're confusing perhaps the idea that they don't want to walk down that street because of the way that person looks with racism. There is that aspect of it where it's like, well, that person's different than me. I fear that. Well, then you're racist. No. What I'm getting at is if, if you're walking down an alleyway, even on a beautiful day in broad daylight, and suddenly from beyond a chain link fence comes a German shepherd or something, and it leaps out at you. Well, your instinct, of course, is going to be like, yeah, you know, protection. And within milliseconds, your intellect takes over and recognizes, oh, there's a fence between us. There's no way this dog's going to harm me. I overreacted. I find that a very possible key to unlocking the door of a solution here is examining that tiny little membrane between instinct and intellect and realizing the difference. It's okay. We can't help ourselves but to have that instinct that I don't know what this is, I don't like it, and I want to protect myself from it. Same as animals. We're the same in that respect. But we must honor the intellect of it, which is the the ability to reason it through. If you look at what's happening with the police, they don't have time for that in a lot of these situations, right? They Their instinct is taking over, and then, whoops, they've made a horrible mistake. Then there's the other side of it where they had plenty of time for their intellect to take over. Mm-hmm. They had plenty of time, and then they still let their instinct run the show. People feel disrespected, well, they're going to pay. Pop, pop, pop. So they're, they're, letting their in, they're letting their instinct in that circumstance run the show. To me, this is, this is everything. All of the dark 
situations, you know, the anger, the the desire to lash out, all of the things that in, in human beings, the dark stuff could be instinctive at times, but the ability to to choose and to reason through it, the intellectual side of it must be given the floor. It must be acknowledged. There's something within us where even though if you know your intellect is creeping into the conversation, they're afraid of it. They're like, I, don't, I could reason through and listen to this person's point of view or weigh the facts, or I could go with the fact that I feel disrespected or threatened and lay them all the waste. Mm-hmm. So if I can leave your listeners with anything on this, it is that it is a constant, like the doors saying, day to day, week to week, hour to hour, deep and wide, break on through to the other side. It's a thought process and a decision. It's the intellect. The only way out of this is for our intellect to take the center stage and the instinct to take a back seat when appropriate. Eric, it's been terrific. And I expected nothing less that uh, the doors and especially John Lennon would make it into a conversation. Uh, I love it. It's just magnificent. I think it's important what you're doing, and I also think that, you know, the tendency in, in these social media times for it to be a fashion, you know, for it to be just fashion, and people, you know, it's easy for Burger King to be like, Black Lives Matter, because they, they feel cornered into it. It's much more difficult to be sincere, and I see that you're doing that, and letting the intellect run the show, so thank you that's the goal i just can't thank you enough thank you thank you for your vulnerability absolutely anytime you've been listening to a special edition of intellikey leadership stories amplifying black voices intellikey leadership stories is copyright 2020 subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts including apple Podcasts, amazon music google Podcasts, spotify stitcher and many more i'm jason lanier white on behalf of your host Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. <laughs>